how would you describe your, your, your beginnings? I, I believe I recall that uh, uh, once you began going around actually playing in clubs or whatever, you were uh, spent some time with Charlie Parker. Is that correct? You ever read those three books they have out on there? Uh, to be honest, see, <laughs> let me tell you something. I haven't been on the cover as much as I've done for music. I have never been on a black cover magazine. Why do, why do you think that is? The same reason you didn't read my book. And what reason is that? <laughs> You're not interested. That record got me high. I'm Rob Elba. I can't uh, stress enough. This is a special episode for several special. reasons. That's right. <laughs> know it. Well, first of all, Barry, you don't. You didn't even know this uh, because we're doing that. We have the uh, the big uh, fundraiser for the uh, children's charity. That yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you know, it's a special, special, uh, very special. That record got me high. No, Barry, this is the 200th, uh, 200th episode. Oh wow! Yeah, holy a, a official two hundredth episode. It's actually we're actually done more. We've done like about two hundred and ten because we have bonus episodes and patron episodes. But the yeah, official, yeah, sure. the the numbered episodes. This is number two hundred. This is going to be so. That's exciting. <laughs> So that's a lot. It, Congratulations. So Thank you very much, Rich. And uh, another exciting thing is that Barry's. Look, Barry, that other voice that's is Barry. Right. Uh, yes. Uh, Barry special. Stock. Yes. Special um, return punishment episode. There you for go. My <laughs> sins. Atone for my sins. I'm sure there's got to be some sins you need to atone for. Uh, it's great to have Barry on. He's all the way in Oakland, California now. And the the third reason why this is special, which Rich doesn't even know this, uh, because I'm going to fanboy on you a little, Rich, because you don't know that I'm actually a really big fan of you. No. So, Rich, you know him from Boston bands, Human Sexual Response, the Zulus, the, uh, the great Zulus. Uh, he also recorded and toured for years with Frank Black and the Catholics. Uh, he and then he moved to Nashville for a while, and you played with Eileen Rose in the Silver Threads, right? Yeah, yeah. So, but Rich, yeah, I was living up in Boston in the late '80s, so I was actually uh, the Zulus. I saw the Zulus play many a time, and you are like one of my favorite guitar players. I mean, I'm just gonna say it. So, uh, it's really exciting to have you on. Thank you very much. I, 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 I thank you. I, that's, I can, yeah. Like I that's, said, Rich didn't know that I was that I was going to fanboy on him and I was going to blow some smoke up his ass. But that's it, Rich. I'm not blowing any more smoke up your ass. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> no, you're welcome. And uh, yeah, at the end, uh, we'll talk about how people could... Because uh, you're still... And uh, the Zulus, the exciting thing is the Zulus, you guys are making music again, right? We are. We are. Yes. That's really exciting. Yeah, we did a reunion show in September in Boston and it was quite... Uh, quite a fantastic event and a great night. Um, so we decided to, why, you know, why put it back to bed um, if we don't need to? So we are going to do another show in June in Boston and we're in the process of writing songs and we're going to record hopefully an album's worth of material that will be ready by that show. Ah, that's so great. yeah, we, we kind of want to be a living, breathing 
entity and not just a, a band that's just doing their old songs that everybody knows. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, repeatedly. Um, why not? Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, the main reason why not is because COVID has screwed up everything Ugh. and yep. we all live in different areas of the, you know, I live in, I live in Maine. Malcolm, the drummer lives in Massachusetts. Larry, the singer lives in New York state and rich. Our bass player lives in Italy. Oh, so, shit. You know, <laughs> so, you know, it makes it a little tricky that way. And, uh, and with COVID, you know, getting everybody together to rehearse and, and learn the new songs and record is going to be a bit of a juggling act, but I think we'll be able to do it. Yeah. Yeah. We'll I think it. so. And uh, just hearing, hearing about the, the, the show you guys did in Boston, I was jealous. I was so jealous that I couldn't fly up there and just see that because uh, it just sounded, uh, yeah, it sounded great. And the pictures from it look awesome. And uh, yeah, it's great. Well, you can come back June 18th. We're going to be doing it again at the paradise. So. All right. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm gonna, yeah. All right. I'm going to hold you. Min, he God, can fly for free. He can fly for free anywhere he I wants. I work for an airline. So yeah, I can. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh yeah me and barry you missed it too it was great and we're gonna do the same thing the next show we didn't have an opening act and what we did is we played two long sets with a about a half hour break in between so that um everybody got to hear all the songs or most of the songs that they wanted to hear oh right so uh, very so, good you know, so we played for probably over a total of three hours between the two the two sets oh shit so you must have been really and, and, tired after that. <laughs> no, not really, because when I lived in Nashville with Eileen, we put together a classic country band called the Silver mm -hmm. Threads. Okay. And, um, and uh, we started playing these gigs on Lower Broad, which is the street where all the honky-tonks are. Mm -hmm. It used to be really cool. Now it's just a party city, a party yeah. city. Yeah. But it used to be about nine honky-tonks, and they have music from 10 in the morning till 2 in the morning. And what you do is you play, they have shifts. So every band plays a four hour shift. So there's first shift is uh -huh. 10 to two, second uh -oh. shift is six, brutal, right? six, and then 10 to two again. And so we, uh, most of my life in Nashville, I played on low, I didn't necessarily go there with this goal in mind. I just sort of fell into it, but I loved it. I um, ended up playing on lower broad for almost my entire 15 years in Nashville, so Ooh, I got wow. used to four-hour shifts. Oh, okay. So the so the three-hour gig, that was like nothing for you. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so and then Eileen and I put our own band together, and then that band did really well on Lower Broad. So then, and then sometimes you would do what they call a double, where you play uh, two to six, an afternoon shift at one club, and then you go across the street and you play the six to ten shift at the next club. Wow. And that's called wow. double. And then sometimes you do a triple. Which is two to six, six to ten, and then ten to two. We yeah. have spoken with you about the dangers of uh, amphetamines as a uh, controlled substance. <laughs> in a, as a, uh, oh, you in know, the all I did in, then in the country scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> little known facts about little known facts about classic country that it was fueled oh, yeah. by. Oh yeah, it's definitely copious amounts of speed. Yeah, no, that yeah, definitely the classic country era definitely. Yeah, they like their speed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Yep. So let's get. So now, knowing just just knowing the the bands that you, that you've played in, the music you've done, and also uh, Barry, uh, which is an unbelievable pedal uh, steel player too. Steel. That's yeah. a skill. That's a skill that I have ex extreme respect for because. Oh, right? So do I. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's like magic. When someone plays it, it, yeah, it's like witchcraft or something. Like, I can't even figure out what's going on, like what they're doing, you know? Yeah, every time I sit behind it, it's still a little daunting. And I've been playing it for 20 years, but yeah. uh, more. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a complex instrument, but it's so beautiful, you know? So yeah. you ever listen to um you ever listen to a, a group this is a little obscure, but um Jimmy Rivers and the Cherokees, you ever heard oh, them? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I know that stuff. Yeah. Vance Vance Terry, the guy that Vance played Terry. with Jimmy Rivers, yeah. is just like, you know, you you're just like, all right, stop. Give me a break. Okay. <laughs> what are you doing? You know? How how did you do that? And uh those guys it's math because there's a mathematical component to that instrument that's different than guitar or piano where you have it's like baseball you have three different things going on at once and you know everything moves forward based on these all this interaction of all this stuff yeah 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 no it, yeah it, it's like basically the playing field changes and because with my pedal steel i just have a single neck but it's ten it has ten strings right which is standard strings for pedal steel. And yeah. then I have three foot pedals and five <laughs> knee levers. And every foot pedal or knee lever bends or lowers a string, at least one string, but most of them do two strings. Oh, bends man. lowers a string anywhere from a half step to a whole step. And you can use, and you, what you do is you can use one pedal at a time, but really you use them, you use combinations of pedals or knee levers. Nice. So you're constantly changing the tuning of the instrument by yeah. engaging the pedals. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, yeah. yeah, like, so what I was saying that uh, and, and the type of music you play, I, I was wondering, you know, I, I asked if you'd be on the show and, and then I just asked you to pick a record and you didn't really take any time. You came up with this right away. So what are we talking yeah. about? What's the record you picked that we're going to talk about? Uh, Miles Davis on the corner. Mm, that's yeah. it. And as soon, Rich, as soon as you said that, I had two thoughts in my head. First of all, <laughs> oh shit, jazz, a jazz record. Because <laughs> anyone who's listened to podcasts know that that's just jazz. It's, it's just never been my thing, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's just not. It's not a jazz record. Yeah. Right, right. Well, that's, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, but, and then the second thing in my head was, oh shit, I, I have to call Barry. I got to get Barry in on right. this because yeah. I know yeah. Barry, <laughs> Barry's a fan. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, all right, so it's as much when I'm listening to it, uh, obviously I hear, oh, this is like funk and rock, uh, you know, and, and all different shit. But first, the first thing I want to know is you guys, like, how did how did two white kids, uh, this came out yeah. in 1972, how do yeah. you get exposed to Miles Davis and how do you, like, first approach this record and what do you think of it? Okay, this? well, I, um... My junior year, high school and my high school years, I lived in a small town in Illinois called Princeton, Illinois. And it was population 7,000. There was like 140 kids in my high school class. And at that point, that was the largest class ever in my school. And, um, you know, I was obsessed with music. So I, there wasn't a lot of places for me to go to find music that wasn't you know the the yeah. stand you know top 10 yeah. albums um yeah. so i would so i subscribed to a lot of music magazines and i read about music all i could and uh and i just absorbed 
you know, the names of so many different artists as people I wanted to check out. And, you know, back then, too, like we would go out in the country roads. We'd ride around on the country roads at night yeah. and smoke pot. And, yeah. uh, and, and back then, you know, at night you could pick up radio stations from far away. Yeah. So, you know, we'd ride around just in the middle of the night, um, you know, me and my buddies just listening to music and finding, you know, you know, sort of adventurous FM stations mm-hmm. from other cities further away. And again, late at night was when they, you know, they really would play their most adventurous stuff. So I, I, mm-hmm. I found out a lot of stuff that way. But yeah. I feel like, you know, I had a subscription to a lot of music magazines and I had a subscription to Downbeat, even though I didn't know much about jazz. But I had a feeling that it was a there was stuff going on there that I was in, that I would be interested in. So I would read all these articles. And then also back in 1972, Rolling Stone was still a really good music magazine. And it covered a lot of, um, it just, it was, it covered a lot of creative artists. And, um, and one issue, it came out and the lead review was a review by Ralph Gleason of two albums that had just come out. And it was a it was a review where he combined the two records and analyzed them and talked them together. One was Santana, Caravanserai, mm-hmm. which, which is also an amazing album. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then also Miles Davis on the Corner. And the mm-hmm. way he spoke about those records and described them, I just thought, I've got to find this record. Oh, you know? yeah. so you read it. Interesting. Uh, you read about it and you just confront someone describing it before you even actually heard it. That's cool. Yes, exactly. And I knew who Miles Davis was, but I hadn't quite heard any of him yet. I knew about Bitches Brew yeah. and um, I knew he was a you know famous, well-respected jazz trumpet player, but I didn't really know his music. But strictly just from that article by Ralph Gleason, I thought I've got to find this record. And so I used to sometimes make pilgrimages to Chicago or Peoria to go to bigger record stores. And I found a copy of it there. And that's when, and that's when I bought it and took it home. Mm. Nice. How about wow. you, Barry? Yeah, you know, I got into um, probably the first Miles that I would have listened to was per- most likely Bitches Brew and then In a Silent Way and then Jack Johnson, which are like three... records that came out in pretty quick succession that would have been high school and so and probably the same way i read about it you know and and these were sort of legendary recordings plus i wasn't really ready to be into just acoustic jazz so this was you know and it was those records are pro sort of proto fusion records they yeah. got John, you know, John McLaughlin's playing the guitar on some of it. So as a guitar nerd, you've got like you, you've got you know you know that there's something going on there, um, and then, but then the late you know the stuff that's I, when I went to I went to England in um, 1981 with our with this chorus group and I played guitar along with them, me and a couple of other guys with accompaniment. And while we were over there, we went to record stores and I bought, one of the things I bought was a copy of Get Up With It, which was the last record Miles put out for a few years. He put it out in 74. And I brought it home and it's a double album. And it's 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 in the same category of Miles' music 
as on the corner, which is totally uncompromising and not accessible to either jazz or rock people or even funk people at first glance. Right. Um, it's just, and I remember reading a review of, of Get Up With It, and I went and I looked for it online, and I think Lester Bangs wrote it, uh, but I can't be sure. And what he said was, you know, Get Up With It is an expression of Miles' black anthracite hate. And <laughs> he was just, he was, I think he was so fed up with everything by that point that this music is an expression of his intense, his desire to connect with a black audience, which had, had basically dropped off. Like his acoustic, I think his acoustic jazz audience, especially with the quintet, like his last acoustic group was, you know, it was mainly a white audience. And he, he heard Sly and the family stone and um, he heard, you know, Jimi Hendrix. Yep. And he wanted to connect with a, a black audience and that this was his attempt to do that but it's also combined with his you know with the politics of the time and with his you know he was a he was a tough character so that comes through in in these recordings oh yeah yeah well that's it this is not easy listening jazz or smooth jazz no. at all because i was getting it's not easy listening anything this is like the first the first, <laughs> the first note it's an edit. It's a hard edit. Yeah, it they just comes in, in basically right in the middle of a tune. Exactly. What that's one of the things I love about this record, and it struck me from the moment I took it home and put the needle on, you know, put it on my turntable and to put the needle on, is that like, it's like, it's like, the way that record starts, it's as though you just opened the door and walked into a room, <laughs> yeah, where these guys are already playing. different directions you don't even know where to focus your ears or your attention right because it's it's almost it's like a, it's confused it's it's confusing it's like you're 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 you're, you're standing in the middle of like you know a, a street in rome and all the cars and scooters are running by you in different directions and different <laughs> right right so so rich when you got it though did it did it did it sort of meet up your expectations because you had read about it and then you dropped the needle on it? So right away, are you just like, what is this? What the fuck is this? Or were you on board like, oh my God, like uh, right I away? Was, well, I was both. I was both. I was like, what is this? 
And then, but then a part of me was just like, this is amazing. You know, and, 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 you know, I can't say that like I was like 16, so I can't say that I fully understood it, but I knew there was something really deep and heavy and profound going on here. And I also could recognize that these were heavyweight musicians playing yeah. this. Like, like, the, like, I, I was like, I don't even know how you could even think to play this sort of music. And then right. on top of it, it was music that I had never heard anything like it before. I mean, yeah. anything like it. And I was already like, I was interested in, in you know, adventurous music. But this was like, this was like music from another solar system. Like it just like, I didn't have any frame of reference to attach it to. Right, right. Yeah, I can imagine then because now, obviously this is the first time I ever hear it. And for me, I hear how how much it influenced going forward because it was ahead of its time in 1972 some of the stuff on here is very you know you hear hip-hop stuff that was used later on in hip-hop yeah. and and also yeah. you, i hear barry a lot of this reminded me of a uh, kraut rock like the way the the drums oh, are yeah. and everything right For, oh sure yeah motoric oh, sure. uh, kraut rock yeah yeah. And, uh, yeah they were yeah they were they I, were all over this for sure. And I would also say some of the no wave music. Oh yeah. right, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Sure. In yeah. New York in the late '70s, early yeah. '80s, you know, I, yeah. you know, like you know James Chance and you know Ardo Lindsay, you know that uh, you know they definitely picked up on this. I'm sure those oh, guys. hundred percent. Well, it gave them permission. It gave them permission to do what they were doing because it's like, oh well, yeah. you know, Miles has did this, so now there's it's. You know the doors open. You can't say, "Well, that's just crap." Because right. well, they they were though like jazz people. The the purists, jazz purists, hated it. Oh, right? hated it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they well, hated, they hated it. it. They hated yeah. almost all electric miles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, you know, from they they sort of started drifting away with a silent in a silent way. Yeah, and, and you know, and then you know, bitches brew is just confusing to them. Even though bitches yeah. brew, you know, unbelievably, bitches <laughs> bitches brew. You know, reached something like like it reached something like number thirty two on the Billboard Top two hundred. Yeah, it yeah. was amazing that a record that adventurous. You well, know? because it, it, some of it's it's because it's the artwork that he used on these records too yeah. would have Absolutely. attracted a younger audience, and that was Absolutely. I'm sure that was calculated on his point. You know, it's Bitches Brew has got this insane psychedelic cover, um, yeah. but not cheesy psychedelic, but definitely in that you know in that vicinity yeah um and also the sound you know like i said you know he's got john mclaughlin and he's got recognizable you know jazz players that rock players would recognize yeah as you know he's got you know keith jarrett and, 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 and uh, um on there and you know it's and it's it's funky it's groovy Herbie hancock um, i saw there's Herbie there's hancock like tons of people yeah there's a ton of Chikorea. people that played yeah. on this and and uh Interesting, I, I guess in the first when he put it out, he didn't put any of the musicians on there. He just didn't list it because he didn't want. Yeah, on the corner, nope. no, nobody's yeah. listed. No, nope. Yeah, and, they, and actually, they didn't. They didn't let that information out for a long time. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was years before that finally yeah. got d disseminated. He did that with a few records too, as I recall. Jack Johnson, you just picked Jack it up Johnson. and like you look at you just look at the back of it and it's like, oh well, I you know some of it's McLaughlin, some of it's. Pete Cozy, I think, but yeah. just, but that you only learned that because you read in a magazine article or something. And he, yeah. Miles didn't, Miles didn't give a fuck about that. You know, it was whatever he wanted and whatever his vision was. Right. And 
and uh, you know, basically his right hand man, Teo Macero, yeah. w- w- would put you know they would and these the big I mean all those records he put out a bunch of records where they go in and they just play for hours and he has these rotating cats of musicians and then he cuts these long things up and they edit them into pieces. Yeah. 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 I was reading, I forget the name. One of the saxophone uh saxophone players, I, I forget, there's so many that play on this, but he said they, they sort of threw he came into the session, they threw him in the room, put him in front of a mic, but he didn't have he- the headphones. So he couldn't hear yeah. what some of the <laughs> other people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um uh, d- yeah. And so, some of the players apparently the atmosphere during the recording of of On the Corner was it was described as one. Well, I remember reading the, one, an article that described it as chaotic, and some of the musicians were not. You know, they felt uncomfortable in the. You know, during the sessions, and I'm, I have to say, absolutely 100 that that was Miles' intention. That he, that's what he wanted. Yes, right. because that, the same thing happened when when they recorded "Bitches Brew." I, I've read the stories where it was the same situation, like. He brought in all these musicians and players, and then, you know, they were all pretty uncomfortable. And, you know, yeah. and, and then when they left, I remember reading it with Joe Zolano, and he said, like, you know, I left that session thinking, like, I just, was, that was just the worst session I ever played in my life. You know? <laughs> and, yeah, and then, but, funny. like, you know, three months later, because back then, you know, there wasn't as much of a lag time between albums. He said the album came out, and he just couldn't believe. It's like, that was the same record that it, that, that session came from. Um, yeah. Uh, and the other thing, here's a good Miles story real quick. There's a famous Miles story where he de- he definitely liked to make his musicians uncomfortable because he felt like um, if they were uncomfortable, they would be less reliant on um, patterns and cliches that they were used to playing. Yeah. Uh, so there's a, there's a story that pre on the corner, but probably around the time of like live evil. Yeah. Where he, uh, he, he was on tour and he had a, uh, I think it was Keith Jarrett on keyboards, and I forget who the sax player was. It might have been Steve Grossman, but they were on tour, and the sax player said, "Like Miles, I gotta talk to you, man." And he goes, "Like, well, what is it?" You know, and he goes, "Like, you know, when I'm soloing, I, I, I just, you know, I can't, you know, Keith is just playing too much behind me. It's like he's he's getting in my way." You know, he's comping too much. The chords are too much. The stuff he's playing, it's just, it's confusing me. And it's just really, it's really getting in my way. And I just can't do it anymore. You got to tell him to back off a little bit. And Miles says, okay, man, I'll take care of it. Yeah. And the tax player leaves yeah. the room. And then Miles says, hey, you know, bring Keith in here. And uh, and Keith came in the room. And he goes, yeah, what is it? He goes like, hey, man, I was just talking to, again, I think it's Steve Grossman. But it was just, it's, well, but Gary Bartz is the player on Live Evil. I don't know if it's the okay. Same. It might have been Gary Bartz. He's probably his, yeah. And 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 Gary, he's like, hey man, I was just talking to Gary Bartz, and uh, he really digs what you're playing. Do more. Yeah. Do more of that. Do more of that crazy stuff. Well, that tension and everything comes across in this and listening to it. You you yeah. hear all that because it is like I said. It almost gives me anxiety. Uh, yeah. Like, oh no. <laughs> That's that's the point, it. and you could tell that's by design. And Barry, you had mentioned uncompromising, and that's a, oh, that's yeah. the same word you used when we did PIL. 
metal bombs. Yeah. And that's what yeah. it kind of reminds Another me of. Another massively great record. Right, yeah. right, right. But uh, yeah. yeah, something that's you really, it's its hard to describe and some people are going to hate it. Although, like most things, I mean, I was reading, this thing was really panned by a lot of people. But oh, yeah. over the years, obviously, it's gotten, you know, people come I have around to say, and now it gets totally still, It's probably still one of the records that is least listened to like the further like the closer you get to 74 when he just abandoned music for a while mm-hmm. the more because after after on the corner he starts putting together bands with musicians that are less um and I'm, I'm sure this was by design less accomplished and more sort of rootsy and so the sound gets even weirder and even um like my wife hates these records like if if i if it's on anywhere in the house she'll come in and say you got to put on your headphones like any from from bitches brew all the way through basically yeah um uh, get up with it it's just he changed something happened in like 67 like he made his last jazz record his last pure acoustic jazz record is nefertiti Yeah, Nefertiti's the one where it's like, okay, all acoustic instruments, and it's a beautiful, brilliant record. It's got this underlying tension to it, but it's not, it doesn't have that anger. And then his stuff gets angrier and angrier as it goes along. And another interesting thing about these records is whenever John McLaughlin, John McLaughlin's an incredible guitar player, but he will play 4,000 notes in, you know, he plays a lot. But when he's playing with Miles, some Miles says something to him and he plays in a very restrained manner. Yeah, uh, but still know it's him though. It does. This is a tone because it's got this it, 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 it's still got the it's he, yeah, he's still got that attack. The way he attacks yes. the notes is still very much there. But he leaves a lot more space. Yeah. But I, oh my God, I yeah. also think that maybe that's also because, you know, Miles would bring him into these situations and there's eight other musicians in the room, you know, yeah. whereas like your, your standard McLaughlin album is a quartet, right. you know. But I, I think Miles probably also would bring him in the room and, you know, Miles was playing a lot more keyboards on these records. Miles probably goes, plays like three chords and goes, okay, one, two, three, four, and then... That's where you start. You know, I don't think he's giving these people copious directions, which throws everybody off kilter. They don't know what to do. What are you going to do when you're presented with, you know, this guy who is absolutely the most, you know, besides Coltrane, like the most famous jazz musician uh, alive. And Coltrane is dead by that point. 
Right. And he says to you, okay, he plays, you know, uh, three chords and, 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 and starts counting. Okay, this is it. And off you go. This is what happens. And he looks at you, you know, or points at you. Right. A, and James Brown, I think he learned a lot from watching James Brown as a band leader and the yeah. way James Brown directed his groups. Uh, Probably so. Well, I saw Miles in 1975, 74 or 75. Wow. At, at a small wow. club in Boston called Paul's Mall. And he had Pete Cozy on guitar. Oh, yeah. Um, and I forget who else was in the band, but he would do that during the show. First of all, he was he was the most, um, you know, intimidating figure I've ever been in a room with. When he walked, the band came on and started playing, and then he came on. And I'm talking about, again, this was a small jazz club, basement room. You know, if it held 400 people, I'd be surprised. Yeah. And, um, you know, so it's really on the level of, like, you know, a rock club, you know, a small local rock club in Boston yep. at the time. And uh, when Miles walked on stage, it, it, there was just this like icy chill that just went through the room because he was just <laughs> so intimidating of a figure. And then he would do that during the show. He would play a little bit and then he would play keyboard and then he would just like listen. And then he would just point at somebody, you know, and then they would just have to do what they wanted them to do. And he'd point at someone else to stop playing. It was unbelievable. It was incredible. It was one of the greatest shows I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. So wow. The stuff. The, what he's doing on this. He's playing. Uh, he's playing. He's playing a, a lot of keyboard, and he's also playing his horn, and he's playing it through yeah. effects. Right. He's wah, playing wah. it through wah wah fuzz. Rich, I was going <laughs> to ask you because uh, you at at the time when you were playing in the eighties in Boston, like now, guitar. It's normal. Guitar players, they pedals. They have pedals out the ass and everything. You know, everyone mm -hmm. uses tons of pedals. But then I, I felt like there there wasn't as as many. It was more like you know, purists. A lot of guitar players just plugged right into their Marshalls, and that was it. Yeah. And you were you, yeah. so. Yeah. I was just wondering how much did did this like influence your playing, and and how much it, it influenced what what you did? Because you you well, definitely were someone that would use. I remember using wah wah and just you know very a very. Um, Acrobatic, yeah. I don't know, player, is that it? <laughs> is that yeah, it? No, that's a good, no, that's a, that's a fine description. And I did have a lot of pedals. I like to have the different, you know, um, you know, colors to put in my sound to choose from. Right. Um, I'm sure this definitely had an influence on my playing. I don't know if it had a direct influence, like this is what I want to do. Right, you right, know? right. But I think it definitely influenced my playing. Although, I've, I've had this conversation before. You know, where, you know, people have interviewed me and asked me who my influences are. And in a funny way, and I really think this is true, I kind of think, well, obviously this stuff did all have an influence on me. You know, especially the stuff like this that I was listening to right when I was first learning how to play guitar. Um, I'm sure really, you know, made a huge stamp in my musical direction. But I think that really, ultimately... I've always tended to be more influenced by the things that I don't like. So, <laughs> because, because, that, which are, that yeah, you, you got to name, you, name and shame. You got to hit us, man. What, what do you that, not because like? That's, because that just shows you what you don't want to do. You know? Uh, okay. It's like, it's like, Contrarian. I don't like this. So, I don't, I'm not going to do, I don't like this music. I don't like this band. I don't like this sound. So, I'm not going to go in that direction and it, and if i would ever catch myself playing something that reminded me of a band or an artist or a musician that i didn't like i would 
reconsider what I was doing. Oh, got to okay. drop one. You got to you got to drop one name here. You can't leave us hanging. It's got to be. Uh, you, know, you know, actually, I, but well, when I was younger, I was you know totally into hating other artists. <laughs> I know, right? Band. We oh, all yeah. were. We all were. Right? Oh. Some some and, of yeah, some people still are. Really? You know, I, I started playing in bands during the punk era when it was all about like oh, yeah. oh, you, yeah. you know yeah, yeah, yeah. not you know you know not embracing anything. But, you know, now I don't have those strong of a feelings anymore. Now, right. if I don't like something, I just don't really, it just doesn't really affect me. I just don't really give yeah. it much attention. Yeah. However, yeah. I do not, I really don't like the sound of auto-tune vocals oh, on yeah. contemporary 21st yeah. century music. Yeah. And that is the sound of 21st century pop music. Yeah, oh God, it is. So that, that, is the, that is the predominant sound of the difference mm-hmm. between music now and music previous to the 21st century All right, yeah so you could at that right now you could guarantee us on the zulus the next zulus record there will not be auto-tune on the record oh yeah 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 <laughs> okay so, good i have my you know like everybody now i have my own little home studio and i you know i record all my records here and you know i'm gonna do the zulus record here and oh nice. but um yeah and uh i've gotten pretty comfortable with it and um and I have all the different, I have different plugins, you know, for mixing, et cetera. But the one plugin I've never gotten is I've never gotten yeah. auto tune. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, even when it goes on sale and it's like $9, I'm like, I don't want it. <laughs> I don't want it. Yeah. Never I don't think $9, huh? That's pretty, that's cheap. I don't know. I might be tempted just to fuck around with it for $9. <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe it doesn't go down that low. But every once in a while, they do have a sale on it. You know, it's a few different yeah. companies that make it. And, uh. And I just like, no, I'm not, I don't even want it in my arsenal. I don't want the temptation of using it. Yeah, gotcha. So I was going to ask you guys, do you, um, well, first of all, you know, I, Barry, what you were talking about, how he, uh, how he really wanted to make uh, music that try and get black people to get. And it was actually a quote from him. He yes. said, I don't care who buys the record as long as they get to the black people. So I will be remembered when yeah. I die. I'm not playing for any white people, man. I want to hear a black guy say, yeah, I dig Miles Davis. Do you think he was no, successful he totally at that? Failed. But no, no, he wasn't. Complete right? failure. Complete yeah. failure. It was white people again that listened to his music. I know why is that? Guys. What the fuck? <laughs> um, well, for one thing, it's he had been affected by rock and roll, and whether he wanted to be or not, that got in there, and yeah. so that wasn't. And also, it's his music is not. Like, you have to want to... This is not music that reaches out and embraces you. No, this no. is music where you say, it's fucking Miles Davis. He he must have been... There's He must have been... There's something he's trying to communicate here, and I have to... I'm going to have to get to know this music and figure out what that is. And because it's not it's not accessible... Like it's it's less. This music is less acceptable, accessible than like a Captain Beefheart record. And you, I, you know, I'm a huge Beefheart fan, right? But I have an easier time sitting down and listening to Trotmask Replica than I do sitting down and listening to On the Corner because it's just he. It's chaotic. And the the only thing I came up with about this record, this record, how it functions, this is like. It's it's soundtrack music to 
on the corner. Like the only way you can understand it is 1970s driving down the street somewhere in New York. And there's this, it's shit is, it's broken down. It's dirty. It's grim. There's people on the people on the corner and it's a soundtrack like yeah, if you drug made a dealers, movie. prostitutes, if like you, the album right, cover. It's really, just yeah. like the album cover. And if you made yeah. a, a movie about that, this is the soundtrack to that movie. But you know, it's not. It's not um, Superfly. You know, right. Superfly is the soundtrack to that movie, but with the open arms that goes comes and says come and look at this beautiful, you know, this is a story about this stuff. Miles's version is just the, the hardcore, there it is. You know, it's like... Um, it's challenging. It's like it's very challenging. Ex- existential philosophy tr- c- translated into, a you know, electric... Um, it's not even jazz funk, uh, uh, you know, rhythmic... Um, sort of avant-garde music but you know but i will say though but personally on a personal level though like this record and jack johnson and um you know uh get down with it yeah get Get up with it get up with it and live evil and you know um all of those records uh but particularly get up with it jack johnson and on the corner of i think those are the most like the the hardest you know, if that's, a, you yeah. know, to, to break yeah. it down to a, a simple yeah. term. Well, Jack, well, Jack Johnson is more, it's got the, Jack Johnson, though, has the. It's got the rock the, beat. The, the, it's got the, it does. And it don't. And so there's this, there's, there's that to hang on to. There's that sweetness. There's no sweetness. And no, even Live Evil, Live Evil has more of the yeah. sort of bitches brew interplay. Yeah. Yeah, and yep. you know some melodies, and it's got what's that guy? Erto, the the the, the yep. percussion player. Yep. This is all of that's just pulled back, and it's like skeletal robot monster Miles Davis, you know, but, music. But, but at the same time, though, but I find it very engaging, and it and I, it's it's a music you can't ignore when it's on. Yeah. <laughs> Like yes. you absolutely can't ignore it. It's like, <laughs> no. and that was actually one of the, and that was actually a factor that I think did influence me. Um, that especially with the Zulus and the band, the Zulus, we very intentionally wanted to become a, a band that made music that you couldn't ignore. Yes. Like yeah, when right, we were right. playing, when we were playing, it, it was, I, I, I really wanted it to be a situation where, like when we were playing, you either had to be in the room going yeah. on the ride with us yeah. Or you just had to leave because it, <laughs> right. there was, you know, it's like, it, it was like, it's like, I, I just, I didn't, I didn't want like people who were just halfway interested in it, um, half paying attention. I, it, to me, I just wanted to be like something you can't ignore. It's like, like, like raw power. It's like, it's one of those yeah. things where it's like, it's, it's impossible to either, you have to deal with it. You have to deal with it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, and um, 
imagining that's probably his uh you know what what he he liked as well and what he wanted to present as well he, mm-hmm. he uh, oh, obviously yeah. he was a complicated dude so the first <laughs> <laughs> so the first uh the first four things in the original record they had him separated but that's all and I, and I'm playing even though I didn't actually Well they had them separated but the but you know but the groove went from one Oh yeah to no the other. it just it not really just separated as far as different titles but yeah it's one long yeah. groove and they actually did have they did actually did you know if you looked at the vinyl it actually did have the space so you could drop the needle down. oh really oh, okay yeah <laughs> but but when you played the record you know the groove continued through the yeah you know, it was a yeah there was no gap for real it just like kept it just kept going yeah yeah so like, i'm gonna play I, yeah i had some of that I'll, i'm gonna add it into obviously edit in the episode and i'm gonna have it there but i wanted to play the black sat because the it starts out with that long thing and really and like you guys said it just comes in right away like you're well, like, but, but but black satin is the one track that like when you listen to the first side on the vinyl version that was the one spot where there was a bit of a pause right right that's what i'm that's what i'm saying so i'm gonna play a little bit now let's listen to because you you, yeah it eases up just a little bit uh let's listen to a little bit of black sap So that's this has a very soundtracky quality to it. I think. Oh yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 you know, in a lot of ways, this. I mean, in a way, this track sort of yeah, it, it encompasses everything about Miles that is just fantastic. Um, unpredictability, especially in his uh, the the '70s era. Really unusual um, combinations of instruments. Yeah, because he has some sitars coming in there, right? Yeah, yeah. And one yeah. of the sitar players is Colin Walcott. That right. Ended up, he was like in the band Oregon. Oregon, yeah. Or, who are also a very experimental band, but <laughs> not edgy like this. Right. You know? No, um, very, very, uh, very enjoyable. Not easy listening, but you can listen to an, or- an Oregon record. And you yeah. can ignore it while it's on. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But but they are also incredible at the same time. But anyway, but mm-hmm. and, and but then on top of that, you have all of those factors going on. But then when Miles starts playing, he comes in with this very memorable sing-songy melody that gets in your head and you just mm-hmm. it sticks with you. Yeah, he's a yes, master. It does. He's a master of that, of the memorable phrase. Yeah. yeah. 
And but, it's, but like the trumpet is the trumpet is treated so over that music because I wouldn't think of that. You know, it's a it's a really odd juxtaposition of a melody to put over the music that is underpinning it. Um, chaos. He's he's he is organized organizing this chaos. Yeah. And and the trumpet's got he's got the trump some effect on the trumpet. So it sounds like someone is doubling what he's playing, but I right. really think it's just something that I I would I'm I'm gonna also guess that he and Teo put that on after that when yeah, he was I playing the you. trump, it was probably just right. Which you know, even doing all that is ahead of really ahead of their time, right? Because they weren't uh, nobody in the jazz world was doing that right, at the time. Yeah. Right. No, that was actually very controversial in the jazz world that he and Teo were starting to get into basically tape manipulation, right? Yeah. Re-editing uh, the 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 parts to make songs that didn't really exist at yeah. the time the musicians went in to record, right? Yeah, and it, it was considered sort of illegitimate, you know. <laughs> Oh, but they, Miles they hated was into it. Like, yeah. But Miles was into like Stockhausen and yeah. a lot of people that were like doing tape manipulation. And so he totally recognized that like tape is an instrument, you know? Yeah. 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 So really, yeah, that's so like uh, ahead of his time. But it's so, you would think more, uh, there would be other people that would be adventurous like that, but I guess not. Um, no. Uh, uh, there not was really. a. There was a quote from Stan Getz, uh, saxophonist Stan Getz. It's, uh, he said, oh, yeah. that music is worthless. It means nothing. There is no form, no content, and it barely swings. <laughs> yeah. Stan oh. Getz was, this, was, was a very white jazz musician who... But he's amazing, though. He, he is amazing. Oh, no. Stan Getz is, is incredible. He has a tone. Even Coltrane was like, you know... Yeah said we can't all sound like Stan Getz. Right. You know, he was in awe of Stan Getz's but Stan Getz, but he, he, not like a, this he, record. He's a girl from Ipanema. That's Stan Getz. Oh, okay. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, so, but the dirty singing it, the but secret. when that sax solo comes in, it's Stan Getz. Right. Oh, yeah. There's the, the secret in jazz music that a lot of people probably aren't aware of is that this kind of tape editing had been going on forever as long as there was tape. So you listen to these jazz performances and you think, oh man, these guys went in the studio and they just laid this stuff down and that's the way it was. That's not true. They would relentlessly go back and edit these things together, edit out parts, uh, bring in parts from different takes and to make these jazz classics that everyone perceives of as being, you know, every, everybody sat down in front of the mics, you know, they walked into Rudy Van Gelder's studio and, right. and laid down this, this thing. Like, but because every now and then you'll hear a cut in a, in a record, like a famous jazz record. And you're like, Oh, you'll that's hear the, funny. Yeah. I know what but they, I think they, that, they, but I think that yeah. Teo was exactly, but, uh, but I think Teo was still ahead of that with a lot of the guys. Cause he did. That oh yeah. With, oh yeah. Some of the Mingus stuff on, on, on. Columbia. Oh yeah. And yeah, but, but what they're doing though with the miles stuff is another step. Yeah. You know, yeah, because totally. now, now they're really, they're, they're, they're not just editing it to tighten it up. So to speak, no. or they're actually like, they're, making they're, something they're, different they're in such a way to like, and to like throw things, you know, go from you know bleed in from one machine to another so that takes actually start to like you know drift yeah. into each other and and, yeah. and you know it was it's a whole nother thing with those guys they're making it there there was what they had done was say 
this any say any sanctity of the take was now that was gone. It was right. what I'm going to use this to make whatever I want, and that's my that's the end result is my art. And yes, it's not. There's not you know, and the musicians and whoever I, that he's sort of saying that with his not putting musicians on the label. Right. What he's saying is this is a Miles Davis product and it really doesn't matter who the fuck else played on it. But yeah. It's Miles Davis produced by Teo Macero. And that's right. all you fucking need to know people because listen to it and take it as what it is. And, and they are on all those records, you know, the, the imprint of miles is the, is, you know what I mean? Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. They're super strong. You know, it's like, yeah. it's just, it's just there, you know what I mean? It's yeah. just like, these records don't sound like anyone else's record. <laughs> no, no. All right, so we flip uh, the record over, and then we get uh, we get hard once again. You get the little black satin as a little <laughs> respite, but you get hard right again. Yeah, into a little yeah. bit of one in one. <laughs> Like I have to be like Johnny Carson saying that is some wild, crazy stuff there going on. <laughs> yeah, and I was just sitting here listening to it, and I was just thinking, man, that's just beautiful. I just yeah. Well, Rich, uh, you know, now I could all right. Now I could see that, but you're 16. Like I got to give you guys props because I'm telling you, when I was a teenager, there was no way I would listen to five seconds of this. I would just. So what? Uh, um, what other yeah. stuff were you listening to at this time? Like what? What were you? Were you just? You know, like, when I was into, 16. I mean, you know. But really, when I was 16, you know, it's like the usual, you know, I was into, you know, all the usual suspects at the time. You know, I was a huge Jimmy Page fan. Yeah. You know, Zeppelin, you know, Allman Brothers, you know, Live at Fillmore East, you know. Yes. You know, yes. And Genesis. But, you know, I really like, you know, I really liked all that stuff. But I, I. I was, you know, looking for stuff outside of what I, what yeah. I knew there was more stuff out there. Yeah. You know, yeah. and so I would just look for it. And, uh, you know, I would just, you know, I, I belong to like a record club and mm-hmm. I would order like, uh, I would order like records that weren't like the main ones. Like I remember ordering a John Coltrane album 
selflessness, which was I know now later, a, later one of the later era Coltrane yeah, things. But that was like, yeah, but that was the first Coltrane album I ever got, and it <laughs> wow. blew my mind. You know, and again, I, didn't, I was sixteen and I didn't quite understand it, but yeah. at the same time, it's like, but I just knew it's like this is this is heavy, this is serious, this is deep. It'll show itself to me if I just yeah. open myself and just let myself. Yeah embrace it you know well that's cool um, i mean you were so you were you appreciated the fact that it didn't sound like anything else but you knew it was something yeah was something there well for and you. yes yes but uh, but again you know i you know i i can't believe i didn't mention it i, I was and again one of my huge heroes at the time or influential figure actually influential figures for me at the time and he was already dead at this point was hendrix you know yeah, yeah. i was tremendously I, 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 to, to me, Hendrix just stood on a plateau way above everybody else. Yeah. And the main thing that I liked about Hendrix was there were no boundaries. Mm, um, right. That, mm. that, that there was no rules. There was no boundaries that like music could, the musician could <coughs> go any direction he wanted to, as long as he committed himself to it. And that, uh, as a listener, the rewards you could get from that were profound. And so Hendrix, in a lot of ways, opened my ears towards me then being able to listen to Coltrane and On the Corner and, you know, music that was less typical, you know, Western rock music that, right. you know, we were hearing at the time, which I also still liked all that stuff, too. But, right, you know, right, I, right. I, I like the I liked the no boundaries element, and I still like that. You know, yeah. Um, I've never stopped adhering to that. Yeah, I guess one the way I, the thing I, the, the thing I always felt was, you know, when I would approach music that it, and, and you know, when I was sixteen, okay, I would listen to these records, but I in no way was able to. I was listening to them because somebody in the magazine had said, "Hey, this is really cool." And this is stuff you should listen to. And so I figured I, I need to hear this, but it would take me decades to sort of get to the point where I felt like, yeah, okay, now I'm old enough to really understand what's going on. Um, so in a certain sense, I was like, I know, you know, it's like, I need to take, this is some medicine I need to take. And I, I, I don't, I, I realize it's good for me, but I don't really know. I don't really understand it's a fact. <laughs> and then, um, right. so, and, and another way of looking at that was you just, I, I want to be hip and I want to be cool. So I, I got to listen to this stuff. And, um, and that's just how it is when you're, you know, if you want to be a, a, a hip at the used record store, right. you, wanna, you know, have your, you want to have your uh, bona fides. And so you got to, um, you got to have to listen to some of the stuff and some of it. So some of it connects more immediately than others. Sure. Uh, um, and, but, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I ever, I, I really got jazz until I was, you know, a really, so I was like, Oh, I, I'm a jazz listener now until I was in my thirties. And, and that yeah, was, you know, I can understand that. Sure. I, I, I got it younger, but, but still, you know, I was actually just thinking, um, remember how I, I just said that Hendrix opened my ears to this yeah. and a lot of us got to this? You know, I actually, now that I think about it, though, when I was in fifth grade, 
or sixth grade. No, sixth grade. I have a brother who's seven years older than me, and he went off to college. And, you know, we always listened to music together. We were both, you know, music heads. And he went off to college, and he came back home for Thanksgiving break, and he brought two albums with him. Uh, and, and so I'm in sixth grade, right? And he brought yeah. two albums back. And these two albums made a huge impact on me at the time. Velvet Underground and Nico. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Mothers of Invention, Freak Out. Yeah. And right. both those records to my sixth grade ears kind of scared me. Yeah. Like oh, they, yeah. On yeah. Anything like what the yeah. music, any music I had ever heard before, especially yeah. the Velvet Underground album. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I was captivated and intrigued by them. And in a way, those, those, that moment is probably what really started me on the path of like, of that, like, you know, music without boundaries, because yeah. both those records at the time really had that. And then the mothers came out with Absolutely Free. Yeah. My brother brought that and I just love that record. And then We're Only In It For The Money came out. Right. That yeah. Record. I mean, Frank Zappa, and he's got a lot to answer for. And I think the majority of his career, I kind of can't stand him. <laughs> but, I have but, a, I have a theory. I, I'm going to throw down my pet theory after you finish talking okay. about this, about him. But, okay. But those early Mother's records and when it was actually that band, the Mother's Records. Yeah, you know, right. He was, he was still running the show. Yeah. I mean, we're only in it for the money. That's an amazingly, like, complicated adventurous yeah. record yeah. that again like that the music on listening to that record when I was in junior high school because that's yeah. when it came out when I was in junior high again made me then it just set the foundation for then I could buy on the corner when I'm 16 yeah. and it wasn't it wasn't just you know completely incomprehensible to me you yeah. know, like I, I could embrace it. Yeah, I, I didn't. I, yeah, I didn't have an old, older sibling, so for me, it was I was the one out there having to like, you know, throw down the the allowance or the allowance money or the, or the lawn mowing money to buy. Um, and I, I was going to mention Zappa because I think the way Zappa directed his groups on stage. I yeah. suspect Miles saw that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because, you know, Frank played, they played like a residency in New York in 68. Yeah. And um, that's when all that shit was recorded. Like, all that, that, those records came out in pretty quick succession. Yeah. Um, uh, 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 um, absolutely. Uh, 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 um, freak Out, Absolutely Free, We're Only In It For The Money, and Uncle Meat just yeah. sort of was, you know, it was like, very quick yeah and um so and so and, and they played a long time and i think miles must have seen that and you know if he didn't take anything from zappa's music certainly the way that zappa dealt with his musicians uh was became more how miles dealt with his musicians whereas with the original mothers i always felt like frank was like they kind of they knew him from back when and right. so he could never he could never dominate them in a way in the way that he could newer musicians that he would hire because right. you know uh, 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 um jimmy carl black you know they 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 
they just knew Frank as this guy from Lancaster who they played with since the early 60s. Right. Um, also, I think Frank Zappa's career, I think something happened to him. I think, you know, when that German guy pushed him off the stage oh, yeah, into the yeah. orchestra head, pit? Head injury, yeah. right? Yeah. He had a traumatic brain injury. And I believe that affected his music and his personality going forward yeah. after oh. that time. Because awesome. if you if you look at before and after when that happens, that's when you know um, the sort of subject material becomes more um, satire and less incisive political yeah. commentary. And I think the music, yeah, and I think the music it may have gotten more complex, yeah, but it's less, but it's less adventurous. You know, yeah, what I mean? yes, it's, yes, it's, it's less emotionally adventurous. It's less emotionally adventurous. Whereas, like you know, you know, on those those, like you said, those first four mothers albums, especially yeah. absolutely free, especially absolutely free, we're only in it for the money and Uncle Meat. There's there's sections of those records that are un- almost uncomfortable to listen to, you know, yeah. but yeah. in a really good way. You know, <laughs> and, and well, it's the same album, thing. Lumpy gravy. Yeah, oh yeah, lumpy gravy. Yes, that's that's another one where. You, if I put that on, I know that my wife will appear and <laughs> yeah, say, Barry has what lots the, of music that what he can drive his family this? away with. <laughs> what right. the fuck is this? You know, um, but there's some really, you know, there's really funny stuff. And Zappa is listening to the same things that Miles is and being influenced by them. Stockhausen and with, uh, uh, yep. and, uh, and the classic, you know, the, the, the 20th century classical composers. Edgar Verace. Um, Verace, I, I never can remember how to pronounce his name, so I didn't want to sound like a fucking idiot. So I'm glad that you said it. So that's that, my job, um, Barry. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> um, it might be Facebook, whatever. Yeah, no, I think, I think you, you sounded you it, it sounded very good when you said it, Rich. But there's a there's a commonality there in the way they um, sort of a parallel development of of dealing with bands and dealing with musicians. And so with the quintet, these were guys who. You know, these were jazz. These guys were jazz heavyweights in their own right by the time that quintet ended in 68, whatever, 67. So he couldn't quite. It was Miles and these other guys. And people knew that these other guys were um, the shit as well. Herbie Hancock and Ron Carter and and, and Wayne Shorter and Tony Williams. who all went on to make incredible records. Yeah. Um, but once Miles shifts away from that, it becomes more Miles the, you know, the creator and the um, the the um, the folk the the sole focus of the creation is Miles's vision. Yeah, absolutely. All yeah. right. So we get uh, Helen. Now, do either of you know? Helen Butte, do you know anything about that? Is that is that like a, a real person or anything? Is, is you know, I have no idea. I know, I and no I idea. looked. I tried to do some research, and I couldn't. I came up with nothing. But uh, um, this yeah. is another really big, long suite that's at the because you have the uh, the on the corner thing at the beginning, and then it's beginning is, inside too, right? Yeah. And uh, so this, uh, yeah, this is a really. Uh, um, but again, you get like you. One of you said before, uh, uncomfortable, but still, <laughs> but still great. But but it makes you a little uncomfortable. Uh, let's yeah. listen to a little bit of uh, Helen Butte. 
hard to describe like the 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 bass and drum especially are laying down this groove but it's not it's almost like a groove that i that i could almost get my myself around but i can't quite and that mm-hmm. that's what gives yeah. it that quality mm-hmm. yeah you know well you know it's interesting that you brought up the um the mention a long way back of the second public image records uh metal box right because i i think in a funny way these two records are, are good companion pieces in that regard mm-hmm. Because that record also is a sort of thing where, you know, the bass and the drums generally set up some sort of groove, but then Johnny Lydon and Keith Levine kind of do this other stuff on yeah. top yeah. of what you guys are yeah. doing that's not at all what you think, not at all predictable. Right, right. What and someone would time, normally put over those time, grooves. It can, make you really, it can almost be a little unsettling and, and discomforting to listen to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that record! Oh, definitely. That's a that one would be a, a room clearer. You could mm-hmm. in in you know even in eight, you know amongst a hip crowd in the early '80s, you know. But it's uh, also yeah. like when we did it, it's beautiful in its own way. It's beautiful, right? And, yeah, it's uh, you had time. You had time to. It's had you had time to digest it over a long period of time. But at the time, it was like, God, you know, this is. It's it's it feels, and that's the same thing with on the corner. It feels weird, and it feels dangerous, and it feels dark and unsettling, and you're not sure whether it's good, good or not. It's like, man, I don't know how to. I just don't know how to approach this at all. And 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 a and a a character that I would I would describe to both of these albums, on the corner and metal box. Is they both, especially at the time they came out, they didn't sound like anything you'd ever heard. No, and and even even to this day, neither one of them really still sounds like anything else that anyone else has ever done. See, I have, I I certainly, I, I, I totally wouldn't be surprised. If Johnny Lydon was aware of On the Corner and had oh, heard I, it. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And probably he was a fan of it. He loved Can, the band Can. Yeah, so, and the band Can, they definitely heard this. And we're like, oh, we could do, we could do, shit, we could do stuff like that. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. I and- definitely listening to this and going over it. That, that kept popping in, especially the drummer. And and I mean, it's great. What he's doing is great because it's. But it's still, it's it's so different. It's not something you'd expect a drummer. Well, and it's to, also to do. not. It's not perfect. There are clams on this. Yeah, yeah. Which and which is brave of Miles to leave in. He always then though he would always say, you know, that was even back in the acoustic era, you know, you know, <laughs> and, you know, it's like they would say, you know, Tio or somebody would say, like, you know, Tio would say, like, you know, you that's good, but you hit a bad note, you know, that note's not so. And, and Miles said, "Leave it in; it sounds human." Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yep. Well, I'm. Uh, you know, one other thing uh, before we finish up, I'll play the the final trap, Mr. Freedom X. I'll play that on the playout. But uh, I was gonna ask you, Rich. People up and dancing. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Of course, uh, of course. <laughs> you've 
uh, I, I think there's there's something to be said for for both things for just people getting uh, playing all together and just presenting it and that being and also doing what a lot of it which is kind of like what they did here but then he also did the manipulations and manipulated it and did it because for a while mm-hmm. uh, especially when you were uh, with uh, Frank Black and and the Catholics you guys did some records where you just that was the thing where you would just play everyone play together in the room together right and record well it and- uh, yeah I mean I won't go off on the tangent of that but it's something I'm actually pretty proud of being associated with oh yeah you All should you totally Black. should be well, all of the Frank Black and the Catholics records were recorded live to two track. So, Holy shit. Yeah. So they're all recorded live to quarter inch tape that was being mixed as it went to quarter inch tape. So there's no multi-tracking. There's no punching in. There's no fixing in the mix. All of those Frank Black and the Catholics records are live to two track. Yeah, and so so we we would sometimes have to bring in other musicians for some tracks to just make it sound like, you know, there was more instruments and more overdubs, you know, so it wasn't just a four or five piece band playing. But, you know, at the same time, it was amazing because everybody, like, we would just, like, count, you know, count it off and just... Go in seven. You have like seven people on a track, right? All playing together at the same time. Yeah, some four. Sometimes I think there were a couple tracks where there was like nine. Nine. Yeah, and and I'll tell you, yeah, you should be proud of that. But I'll tell you, Rich, as much as I love those records and listening to them, it almost gives me anxiety for you guys. That must have been so hard to record and to do that. Well, you know, at first it was. Well, they did the first record without me. They did the first record with Lyle Warshman on guitar, and he's great. And he plays great on it. But that was the first one. They just went in. The way it worked was they went in and they recorded all those songs. Because um, Rick Rubin wanted to. Well, you know what? I don't, I don't know if I should get too much into it. But basically, Rick Rubin wanted to produce them. And uh, and they went in and they cut those songs live to two trap. And then um, Charles decided he liked the way they came out. So Charles Frank Black. That he liked the way it the feel of them so much he said like i just want to release them like this mm-hmm. so that became then the um the method by which frank black and the catholics recorded all of our albums so then i joined on that i joined up and the next record Cristolero, i'm on that one and yes yeah, so basically i mean at first it was a little a little concerning but you know in a funny way we all we played together a lot and you know we would just do take after take after take if we needed to and, um, you know, you just got really comfortable and kind of relaxed. And if someone made a mistake, we would just say, like, I made a mistake. And sometimes we'd leave the mistake in if the overall take was good. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, it, it actually became less stressful than you would think. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Rich, uh, I can't. Like I said, I, I'm. I'm. I was so excited to get you on the show, and you're. You. You. It should show how high a statue, uh, a stature you are in in my mind as a musician. That you said I want to do Miles Davis record, and I said okay right away. <laughs> but uh, it, it was it was great. This was really great uh, having well, you on. Well, it seriously was a record that had a tremendous impact on me. Oh yeah, I'm sure uh, I could tell just from the fact that you that have, named but, it right but, away. And, but it's still, it's just like, it's like, you know, if I think about like, you know, what are some of my, you know, what I think are just some of the greatest records of all times is like, man, on the corner, you know, it's right, like, right, right. It's like, there's, there's still nothing like it. I mean, mm-hmm. it has had an influence over time, kind of, 
you know, but not, not, you know, not, not to the point where you can really draw a line, you know, right, it's, right, almost, right. it's almost more like you can pick out little kernels of things and say like, well, yeah, I guess this showed up over here 10 years later and this, somebody did this just kind of like that. I feel but like that. Yeah. Even me just listening to Singular it, right? record. Yeah. And, and also you, like you said, you can't, you can't trace a straight line to influences on you, but obviously it's just another thing that got inside your DNA and just sort of, you know, added Absolutely. to all the shit you do. <laughs> well, again, like I said earlier, the, the concept of no boundaries, you know, mm. yep, uh, that was a huge appeal to me and still is. Oh yeah. Well, know? anyone that's seen you play live, it's, it's, that's it right there. And uh, all right. So Rich, where's the best place? I know you have your website, the Legendary Rich Gilbert. The legendary Rich Gilbert dot com. So will people be able to see stuff that's going on with the the Zulus as well on there? Yep, yep, yep. Okay. And uh and Good. any you know, any shows that I have coming up in Maine, which I'm gonna start we're actually I'm gonna start playing again around here pretty soon. So uh I have well, there will be shows coming up and I'll put it on my website and Oh awesome. Yeah. All right, yeah. Well I, I COVID, you know, COVID kind of like killed a lot of like you know at, you know live music activity yeah. oh, God, and yeah, it still yeah, is yeah. kind of having a, as we know a profound effect so yeah you know but uh but yeah. it, it was uh yeah it was, it was so great having you on and yeah i, I urge everyone to check out uh that site and just check out rich's music if you're not familiar with it and you may you may be familiar with some of it you don't even know you <laughs> you're familiar with it yeah, um maybe. but it was great having <laughs> you on and barry you. barry what can i say it's it was so great talking to you again and having you on yeah here. it's great because I, I i i all i have to do is talk and i don't have to edit or, or worry <laughs> about it after <laughs> i hang up the phone hang up and be done that's with it. it i go eat go eat dinner and i'm, I'm like jealous oh, i'm so jealous of you uh, uh but i i appreciate you coming on because i wouldn't have had all the little things you had to talk with rich i i don't know what i, I would have had <laughs> but uh, i appreciate both you guys don't forget uh you guys could go on instagram and facebook it's at that record got me high also that facebook group got me high is a lot of fun uh twitter at trgmh podcast you can email me at trgmh33 at gmail.com tell me you know whatever you like the show you think that, what, that's, that you said is stupid tell me i mispronounce out people love telling me when i mispronounce. out but i didn't yeah. i i mostly kept my mouth shut with names and stuff so i don't think is it tio or teo is it tio or teo i can't you remember know. I, I, I've heard both, but I don't really know what it is. But I bet you it's Teo. <laughs> Teo sounds better, I think. I'm, I'm, Teo Macero. Yep. Yeah. All right. And don't forget, guys, if you want to become a patron of the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash TRJMH. Become a patron of the show. I'd appreciate it. Rich, thanks again so much. Uh, You're welcome. Agreeing. And uh, yeah, and, and maybe Eileen's going to pick a record and maybe come on too, right? We'll get my, we'll get Eileen Rose on. And she also loves music and has favorite records. And she's... She will be quite insightful and funny and entertaining and okay, everything well, as well. Well, you're building her up pretty high, so, you know. <laughs> uh, she won't disappoint. All I right. promise. Thanks again, Barry. Thanks again. Uh, I All right. It. I'll, I'll talk to you again. We'll see you guys next week. I'm out of here. All right.